Welcome to the Wellbeing Designers Podcast. My name is Reka Deak. I am your host. This podcast is about well-being at work and in life. We discover how we can design the future of well-being together so we can create human-centric organizations and a sustainable work life. In the first season of the podcast, I talked with the first generation of well-being leaders in big organizations. Usually, they were the very first ones in their organization ever to have the title of Head of Wellbeing or similar. In the second season, starting with episode 9, you will meet similar people again, and I invited some other interesting profiles as well. All these people work on Wellbeing on a systemic level. Their mission is related to make the world a better place through focusing on well-being. In the past years, especially since COVID, employee well-being got on the top of the agenda, not only for companies worldwide, but even some countries and other official institutions started to call for action. In the well-being designers podcast conversations, I would like to highlight the work of those sometimes invisible people, leaders, who are either in charge of well-being in organizations and trying to navigate amongst the growing amount of well-being offerings while connecting efforts to business impact and most importantly, create real value for employees. Or they are those leaders who are doing their best to create international forums to exchange, raise awareness and take action on well-being and people sustainability. They might be the ones whose responsibility is to take care of hundreds, thousands, or ten thousands of people's well-being. They might be the ones who keep decision makers and CEOs engaged about the topic of well-being. They might be the ones who are proving that employee well-being is a strategic enabler of sustainable performance and business success. They might be the connectors between well-being leaders across companies and countries. I call these people well-being designers. Enjoy listening to them and learning from them. Together, we can design a human-centric work life and the future of well-being. Our guest today is Casey Fleming who is a passionate advocate and believer that well-being and joy are cornerstones to a fulfilling career. Casey is a TEDx speaker, an award-winning well-being strategist, a frequent contributor to Thrive Global, and a Master's of Administration in Organizational Psychology. She currently works as a head of global well-being for Takeda and is focused on empowering life-work alignment and creating equitable access to well-being resources and programming. 
Takeda is a Japanese multinational pharmaceutical company with partial American and British roots, employing nearly 50,000 people worldwide. Most recently, Casey has authored pieces on midlife career transitions, women's health, as well as a series of flexible work. This October, she will be sharing her thesis on factors that affect productivity in flexible work environments at the New England Psychological Association annual conference. She is also a certified integrative health coach and vinyasa yoga teacher. When she is not working, Casey is an avid fiction reader, a downhill skier, and a seasoned yogi who enjoys watching mysteries with her partner Mark and dogs Otto and Finn. Hi Casey, welcome to in today's episode on the Wellbeing Designers podcast. Thank you so much, I'm very excited to be here. Welcome, and uh, just uh, share uh, with us where you sit in the world today, because I am in Switzerland, but as much as I know, we are quite far from each other. <laughs> yeah, actually, today I'm in the Cambridge office, so Cambridge, Massachusetts. We do, as an organization, have Zurich sites and other sites in Switzerland, but I am not there today. You are correct. I am across the pond, as they say, in Boston. I read your bio for the listeners. I would like to hear a bit your version of who you are, who is Casey Fleming, and most importantly, how did you get into this role of being the global head of well-being for Takeda? That is an evolution, as my partner would dismay, right? I'm never one thing for very long, so I've had a long career in pharmaceuticals. I actually started life as an actress, though, so that was a big departure, right? But over the years, I did, you know, sales, marketing, communications, operations, market access, and then... I was very misaligned, right? So this kind of leads into how I got into well-being. So I was extremely misaligned in my work. I was doing a lot of math-based things and you don't know me that well yet, but if you did, you would know math is not my forte. So it was pretty odd and a departure for me to be in that kind of a role. And at the same time, I was newly married and I was expecting my first child and I miscarried. And between the sadness and the stress of that situation, and then the really interesting misalignment of my career choices, which I don't regret, right? They totally led me where I am and I learned strategy there, but, you know, it really weighed on me emotionally. And I ended up in a place where I was just ill. I had a horrible autoimmune disease that was brought on by the stress of all those moments. And then I had to figure it out, right? Because at the time, nine years ago, eight years ago, medicine really wasn't talking about the microbiome. They weren't really talking about uh, why people couldn't eat anymore or you know how somebody would go from celiac to not being able to eat food and the connection of stress and burnout really to autoimmune disease. And so- I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe I need to like leave corporate. Maybe that's what I need to do. So I went to school to become a yoga teacher. I took that journey because well-being was always fascinating. And then as I got sicker, 
I said, okay, well, you know, I haven't been able to find a gastroenterologist who can cure me. So I need to go see a functional medicine doctor and I need to learn about my own nutrition. And I went to school for integrative nutrition. And that really led me down this path. I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do at first. I came out and was a health coach while I was still in corporate doing this role. And then suddenly I, I noticed everybody around me was really experiencing similar things, especially women with burnout, fatigue, looking at their high stress jobs and asking themselves, is this it, right? Like I've worked my whole career and I'm stressed out. I have no time for myself. In many cases, people had children, partners, parents aging, and I could no longer do this job that didn't feel like me at work and be this like wellness person outside of work, right? It mm. didn't work. And so I, I came in to my then company and said, you know, is there anyone doing this work here? You know, is there anyone doing well-being work? I didn't even know, right? I was so far removed in a marketing role. I had no idea what was happening over in DE&I or HR. And but, yeah, that's also a sign because if there is something then you should know about it. And yeah, if, if you don't know about it and there is something, it's even worse, right? <laughs> right. Well, they were actually, they were beginning to do the work. There was somebody in the role. But they did have well-being champions. They were just starting well-being champions, which a lot of organizations have. I myself have them in my current role. They're a wonderful, you know, I don't even want to call them a resource. They're wonderful humans that really care about the well-being of other humans and help us create kind of this environment of community care. And that was my first step was becoming a well-being champion. And then from there, you know, I just kept going and took a preceptorship in well-being and kept my strategy job. And then transitioned to my now company and did so by saying like, look, when I go over here, yes, I'll do the strategy work, but you know, I want to keep working in well-being and I need to start working in it immediately. I'm not fulfilled if I'm not doing both. And time just kind of came. COVID was in full swing. I had the same reckoning that I think a lot of humans had and was like, that's it. I, I can't do this other thing anymore. So I'm either going to leave this company that I'm with and go do it elsewhere. And I'll start at the bottom if I have to, or hopefully I can parlay this into a role because I think the company really needs it. And at that time, my company, I give them a lot of credit. They believed in me. They, you know, took this role that I wrote down on paper and the work that they had been already doing. And I had already been doing in the function and they made it a reality. And that's how I got here. So it wasn't a straight journey. Uh, it wasn't an HR journey. It was not, I knew I wanted to do this when I was a kid. It was none of those things. It was really life. And then just my career journey that led me here. Wow. So you really created your role for yourself and uh, for the whole company of Takeda, right? I think they, there was already the desire to do something, right? So there had already been an employee experience survey and the decision that resources needed to be put in place. And there was somebody that had done some of the work to put those resources in place and they did a great job and they had left the organization and there was no kind of formal role with a formal description of here are all the things this person needs to get done. And that's what I brought, right? It's not that the company didn't already know, obviously, with COVID that well-being needed to be a focus or that they weren't focusing on it. It was time for a formal role and a formal headcount to, to do this work. 
And how long have you been with the company in general? So I've been with the company a little over three years. I've been in the role almost two, not quite two, uh, but it's been so fascinating the evolution of well-being and really seeing how much it's changed from when I first started working as that well-being champion to really where it is today and where it needs to go, or at least I mm -hmm. believe it needs to go, right? When you were hired, then you still did your marketing uh, sales job, right? And then this evolved very quickly in your current role. I did the other role for a little over a year. And as I said, COVID really was pressing on me and I was done, right? I had been working towards well-being for six or seven years and it was my passion. And I didn't really feel like I could be my best for the company in the other role. I wasn't good at it, right? You have to look at yourself and be like, oh, oh I can't do everything. I'm not great at this job. I'm lucky they hired me. I'm grateful, you know, but they deserve somebody who really wanted to do that work and who loved mm -hmm. it and was passionate about it and who was great at it. And that was never going to be me. And so, you know, I, I think it was kind of twofold. One, I needed to get into well-being because it's where my passion really lied. But also the company really deserved better than me in that role. You haven't been for so long in the company, but uh, what do you know uh, about the evolution of well-being uh, at uh, Takeda? So you mentioned that it was already there brewing and usually such big companies, they have a history of you know, wellness and all these other uh, approaches that came before we talked about uh, yeah. the current version of uh, organizational well-being. Yeah, I mean, let me talk a little bit about well-being and the evolution in general. You know, the company, I can give you kind of where it was when I came in, but I think it's pretty true for most companies, right? And I know a lot of people don't have a head of well-being, so it's it's not necessarily that true in that same realm, but well-being used to really be, right, this concept of wellness. It was very closely connected to benefits and safety, like how do we ensure that people are healthy and that they're physically well to do their jobs and that we are not having massive mental health challenges. And it was really like acute crisis, right? So it was very EAP centric and, you know, physical health centric from a sake of benefits are really expensive and let's make sure that our people are healthy to keep to keep costs down. And I'm not saying that's my company's thing. That's just industry. And, you know, when I came in, there was it was an interesting time because it was COVID and there were a lot of programmatic solutions. Like even at my company prior, it was like, what what do we need to bring people? Like people are so stressed with COVID. COVID's such a mess. People are all working from home. Everything's changed. How do we do this? And so I think while being at that time was very much like, let's throw a bunch of apps at it, right? Like, let's get people applications. Let's get people solutions. Let's make sure they have resources, talk spaces, Ginger, all these companies, right? Calm. And they're wonderful companies and, and it's nothing against them. But I think what I've really seen happen, and a lot of this comes from observing data and, and really digging in deeply, but is application and resources are necessary, but they don't fix the problem because the problem, you know, in what we've seen at least, and, and my observations from my organizational psychology masters and doing all the research there is it's really the way we work. It's really how we work that 
has a big determining factor on how we feel, right? Our well-being. And I also think it's really shifted from, and I hate the term self-care. I don't know why, like there's just, I'm weird about words and self-care is so important, but it is not in the company realm per se. Community care is really what we need to focus on. And, and that's really the evolution is that it's gone from the, here are the apps, take what you need, leave what you don't, you know, make yourself feel better to wait, our problems aren't just this external thing, right? The problems aren't just that this human has trouble at home or they've, you know, are going through a health crisis or whatever, and they need resources to the way that we're working is really taxing for people. Mm -hmm. And people were never given the skills, at least not in the US, to prioritize, to create boundaries, to manage time and workload. And those are really critical skills to being well. If you can't create and maintain a boundary, that's foundational to your well-being, right? So that's a challenge. And if you can't manage workload for yourself or block time to focus or do the things that are priorities to you, that's a problem. So at the same time, all of a sudden, we can't look around at our entire workforce and be like, everybody has a problem with these things. It's on them. No, it's up to us. We need to upskill our people to ask for what they need, right? It's not a one-way street where the leader is supposed to just be like, okay, everybody take this time off and focus on your exercise. Well, maybe that's not what I need. So it's it's two ways. And that's really the evolution I've seen, which is that now we have to focus on the skills that are really at the root cause of our well-being challenges and provide resources and applications for those things that are out of our control, right? Mm -hmm. Things that are going on in the family, things that are going on in the life outside of work. So that's really the evolution that I've seen. My favorite example on this evolution is if I find out that my way to be well, to feel well in my body is to go for a run every day. I do that, but then I can still be not a team player with my team, micromanaging them, not managing their workload. So we need to connect these dots and help people then to connect their physical, emotional, mental well-being. I think to that end, right? Like there's nothing like doing what you need for you. So obviously, you know, I had well-being because I love well-being. And I love yoga and I love meditation. I love journaling. I'm one of those people that loves healthy food, right? And doesn't like anything unhealthy. And yet I can do all those things. And the email comes in on Sunday or 10 p.m. Or someone is unkind. And all of that good work that I've done, really boosting myself up so that I can be the best I can for my job, my company, my family is gone. And then I've got to get it back right? Then, then I have to do the work to get it back. And so I think we, we really need the upskilling of leaders and the upskilling of individuals to create, maintain boundaries and, and prioritize or else, you know, you do all this stuff and then it's wiped away, right? And it can't constantly be on the individual because if it is, they're just going to leave. 
right? Eventually we've seen it. Like how many women in my age range, right? The, the 40 to 55 peak of their career, you know, killing it. How many of them have left the workforce to go into consulting because something there just was toxic to them, was uncomfortable. And that has to be remedied, right? We can say that these conversations don't belong in the domain of the workplace and it's really up to the individual, but I think that we're just going to keep losing people if we don't, as a society, learn how to work. Absolutely. And you already now mentioned women and highlighted them. Let's, you know, get back to that shortly. At first, could you tell a bit more about your role and how Takide approaches well-being? So we heard it from companies that they might have pillars or a certain framework structure. What is it for you? There are dimensions or pillars in every company. I like to see them as dimensions because for me and for us, they're all connected, right? You can't have an injury and not feel that emotionally. You can't be financially uh, struggling and feel fantastic, right? Like they're always connected. So I don't like to see them separated. We, we partnered with Thrive Global and what I really set out to do was take a data-driven approach to what our challenges are. and. It's those things we just spoke of, which is not uncommon. I think that's worldwide. And so it's really this concept of empowering life work alignment. So this isn't one of the dimensions. It sits kind of within all of them. But it's this concept of work-life balance is a myth, right? You're never going to balance your personal life and your work life perfectly. It's just, it's not going to happen. And What I mean by that is there are days when you're going to work till eight or nine because you need to get things done and there is a deadline. But those are the exception and not the rule. And you have to find a way to ensure that while you're doing that, you're still able to prioritize all those things in your life that are really important and non-negotiable, which may mean you start the next day at 10 or 11 a.m., right? Or noon. It's aligning the two things. And really what that requires is a life inventory. What are my priorities that are non-negotiable? So for me, it's some form of movement. It is having a matcha with my partner in the morning. It is, you know, spending time with my dogs. It is making sure I'm home for as many meals as I can be. And when those things are taken care of, everything else falls into place, right? I can tackle all the things going on inside my work, getting my master's, all of these things at the same time, because I'm taking care of myself. So those first pieces, really, that's the approach we try to take is that everybody has this life inventory and we're not there yet. I'm not going to suggest that we're even close to there. This is a multi-year process, but then That second piece is getting really clear about my work priorities. And I think we don't know most of the time. And sometimes our leaders don't know, and that's okay. But we need to have those conversations and and really get clear on what are the things that I need to do. They're called survival tasks in the org psych world, right? Like, what are those things that if I don't do them and I don't do them well, my job ceases to be performed, right? And I'm not saying we're not a team player and we don't take any, anything beyond that. But but these are the things that can't move, just like the things in my personal life can't move. 
And when we're clear and people start shoveling work at us or throwing other things to us, or we want to do things in our personal lives, like take on podcasts, like take on panels, like take on whatever it is, you know, sporting or however you like to spend your time. We don't know. And we end up completely overwhelmed with too many things. And so having those priorities really crisp gives you the ability to say, you know what, I would really love to do X, but I I can't do X until this date. Is that going to work for you still? You're not being rude about it. You're not saying, no, that thing doesn't matter. Get away from me. You're saying, hey, listen, I really want to do it, but can it, can it wait? Or, you know, hey, listen, I get that this is really a priority for you. Let me speak with my leadership and see if there's something they can take off my plate from one of my current priorities so that I have space for this. And that way you're not in a position where you're the one that is so overwhelmed, you can't function. So that's really the approach we're trying to take is upskilling individuals in in these areas. And it's a multi-year challenge. It's not quick work. You can't slap an app at it, right? You have to do the work. So a life inventory and work priorities, this would be plus other well-being dimensions, as you mentioned, this is the approach that you are taking. Yeah. And it ends up equaling, you know, empowering life work alignment, right? And we say empowering because it's two ways. Leaders have to create a space where people feel comfortable asking about their priorities, asking about meetings they don't know if they should attend, that sort of thing. And individuals have to take accountability for that personal life inventory and kind of their priorities and what they don't know they have to ask. And that creates, hopefully, an environment where well-being is sustained. Yeah, all this sounds really cool. And you also mentioned that it's a long process, many years. So how do you do it? Uh, how do you uh, scale this in the organization that really everyone gets them, leaders as well as employees? We've got a lot of collaborating to do, right? A lot of this is driven within HR in the sense that that's where learning and development live. That's where leadership development lives. That's where well-being lives. That's where DNI lives. So all of these things that are very tightly connected, they require a lot of collaboration, which is great. I love my partners in those areas. So that's fantastic. The other side of it is a lot of the skill building is really digital these days. So we have a wonderful data organization that sits outside of HR. It's also how do we use things like Microsoft Teams? How do we use things like the tools that we have at our disposal to help people block focus time, to help people build habits around the times of their meetings, right? Shortening them to 25 and 50, as opposed to 30 and 60. How do we teach people to not have things like attachments in their emails? We're not there yet. We haven't done all that, right? But I'm saying these are the things that we're kind of looking at. So it's really the collaboration of all these functions, tackling different elements of the upskilling and there's great cohesiveness. So for instance, you know, Thrive Global next week is doing a whole bunch of leadership development sessions for our team through learning and development, not through well-being. I'll be there, but it's really about the skills being where they need to, to be honed. And we have all of our learning materials for well-being on our LMS system. And that helps us to further access to them and make well-being not feel like another thing that an already taxed workforce has to do, right? And again, we're not there yet. It's a work in progress. Any good change takes time. 
and takes the investment and the leadership and the repetition and the skill building and the commitment. It doesn't happen overnight. And this is really relearning or unlearning some behaviors that weren't helpful for us as people or as a society or as, you know, organizations to get better skills, skills that really help us thrive in this new arena. And I think it's really fascinating how hard we as organizations are on ourselves when we forget to look at what's happened in the last 13 years. I say this in my TED talk, like 13 years ago, video conferencing was barely a scalable possibility. Like you and I would not be sitting here like this on Zoom. It was really like a phone conversation or it was reserved for the most senior leaders. Now it's like an afterthought. The fact that we're on like calls all day and we don't have to be physically in the same space to do business. There's even collaborative tools online and notes takers and dictation. <laughs> you know, all these tools that weren't available are now available. And so we're constantly on, we're constantly taxed, but we have all these great new ways to work and we really need to explore them and stop asking why we're evolving and start moving towards the evolution so that work works better for everyone and not just the lucky few that can afford babysitters and nannies and you know have a partner that can stay home. Like this is not reality anymore. We have to look at all those things that are out there for us and find a way to collaborate and scale this organizationally. Mm -hmm. I love to hear that uh, you are so interconnected with the uh, other areas of the organizations. Some companies might fall still in the trap to create a, a very separate well-being program, which is the hundreds on the to-do list of employees. And of course, if they are overloaded by work and don't have time for self-care or anything like to, to do their daily job, then this is just going to stress them out and not really solve the problem. So it uh, sounds like you are on, on this collaborative way of uh, doing things. And here I would like to ask, so where are you exactly then in the organization? You mentioned that you are within HR. I sit in total rewards. I'm a little separate from benefits. I did want to say one thing though. It's a, it's a thrive quote. And I think it's, it really speaks to what you're talking about, about the collaboration aspects well-being is a strategy, not a benefit, right? When we shift looking at well-being as a benefit, a transactional, one-time, elected, non-mandatory offering, and look at well-being as a key driver for performance, as a key driver for those things that are going to move business forward, then we really will see it succeed. And that is why rather than just sitting in a function and being siloed and not moving the work out, I've really sought to partner and stretch because I'm one person and I can't, I can't do it all. Right. And, and who cares what the head of well-being thinks, right? I always say like, yeah, I have to work really hard at my own well-being, but everybody thinks it's easy for me. Everybody thinks and assumes that that this is bread and butter and that I can say no, because if I don't, who's role modeling it? It is quite difficult for me, but wouldn't everybody rather hear from their leaders how they're doing this work and from people they know and their well-being champion that work, like what's working for them and how they've succeeded? It's not about me. So it's so important that we do help 
this set of behaviors or skills really proliferate the organization through all of the champions, whether they're technically champions or they're leaders, right? Or they're just individuals doing this for themselves. Equally important. I often think about, we have this amazing champion. She's also an executive assistant and she's incredible at calendaring. And she's offered to like teach anybody who wants to learn how to like calendar for themselves, how to do it. That's how this work gets done. It doesn't get done because the head of well-being sits on high and says, this is how it is. Everybody would tell me to pound sand and they should. It's not about me. And so that is why I think it is so important uh, to collaborate really and make this a strategy and not a resource or a benefit. What about the, the female well-being approach? So when we talked the first time, you were very enthusiastic and open about it, that this is one of your hard topics. And I have to say, in previous episodes, we didn't really touch this topic, although, you know, it's really out there together with like parental well-being, which is about both men and women and about specifically female well-being. It's something that we're working on right now. How do we label this? Is it women's health? Is it family health? Is family health a misnomer because a lot of people don't have children? You know, it, it can be same-sex couples. It can affect men with low testosterone. So how do we call it? That's something we're kind of trying to figure out at the moment. I think my passion comes from my experience, right? I spent my first 20 years as a reproductive female with horrible endometriosis, which meant that I was sick all the time and had to function through that. Didn't have an open space to talk about it at work. I grew up at a time when if you wanted to be taken seriously, you would never talk about, you know, menstruation or anything related to women's health. Flash forward to where I am now going through perimenopause and menopause. And it hit me like a freight train. Every symptom you could imagine from night sweats that kept me up and woke me up every 20 minutes to pain. And, and when I say night sweat, you're not hot. You're, you're having a full on panic attack. You feel like you're going to die, you know, would make me so uncomfortable. Like even today in the building, I'm warm. Right. And I was thinking like, oh, well, I take my coat off. But, you know, it's not just that. It's a lot of times perimenopause starts at 40, like early. And we don't know that we're not taught that as women, we're taught this is like a 55 year olds thing. And, you know, and so then when I started having anxiety increased and symptoms increasing and depression and was in a really dark place, I had no words or language for that. And I was somebody who's been like a lifelong anxiety sufferer. So you'd think I'd totally have language, but it was a different feeling for me. And I was suddenly having to deal with all this at work. And I'd always seen colleagues fanning themselves or I'd caught myself being short with people. That's not my nature at all. Not at work, certainly. We need to talk about it. We need to create a where it's not stigmatized. It literally happens to every single woman on the planet. Now, maybe it happens in different symptoms or different time frames, or it happens surgically, but it happens and it's not a condition. It is a part of our lives, right? Mm. Just like a period is part of our lives. Just like miscarriage is a natural part of, of the pregnancy process. But all these things are so quiet. You're expected to just eat it and show up. And here's what I'll say. It's not an excuse to be unkind, to be a lesser performer, to not work. But certain accommodations should be made for 
people so that if you are having severe night sweats and you're sleeping two hours a night, work from home that day. You should be able to do that. If you're sweating out of your clothes and you're embarrassed, work from home that day, go home. If you have cramps that are so unbelievably bad, you can't sit through a meeting, go home. Be able to talk about that. And because we don't talk as women, right? Nobody knows. Yeah, I'm sure there are men that don't want to hear about it, but we've kind of created that. And I'm not blaming women. I'm just saying we were forced into this. You got to be like a man to move up. And then we've kept it up and we don't have to anymore. And we shouldn't. And quite frankly, the men that I know are really supportive. Many of them are partners. Many of them are beloved colleagues and friends. They want to be allies. They don't know how. And so we have to teach that too. And that does belong in the workplace because here are the stats, right? 1.1 billion women are going to be in perimenopause or menopause by 2025. Hmm. We are looking at upwards of 54% of women saying they've had some sort of incident at work related to their menopause or someone else's menopause. Depending on where you look, and I've seen these estimates from 30% to 70%, but of perimenopausal and menopausal women have either considered leaving their job or have left. So even if that's at the low end, let's just say that's 25%. Most of these women, they're at the peak of their careers. So you are losing all of that knowledge by not supporting people in the prime of their careers. And that's a big mess. I don't like to think of it. And and that's not even touching on the maternal death rates, depending on social determinants of health and all of these other areas, we need to talk about these things and we need to create solutions. So we can say that this doesn't belong in the workplace, but if we say that, then we can't say that DEI belongs in the workplace, right? Because women make up 50% of the world and increasingly make up the workforce. The study that I love and that I quoted is in my TED talk, two studies, McKinsey's women at work study shows that over 90% of women reported wanting to work flexibly. And that percentage is even more pronounced when it's women of color, members of the LGBTQ plus community or workers with disabilities. That's a direct line I wrote right for my talk. That is so impactful, nine out of 10 women. And there's reasons for that. And it's, it's not just microaggressions, it is. It's not just having children at home, it's the cycles of our life that we naturally go through that are very difficult to live through in a public realm. When we look at single family income, primary breadwinner, it's almost gone. It's literally like 26% of the population now. That means that everybody else is in a dual family income. So we've got so many women in the workforce and our policies are really designed for a workforce of yesteryear. It's not for today. I don't mean that as my organization. I mean that in general, right? We need to make sure that we are not just saying that we care about well-being. And we're not just saying that DEI is important, that we're doing the things that enable that to be the way that we work and how we work. Yeah. And not just a nice to have. Building on that, I would go a bit into the quantitative data. So how do you measure then the effectiveness of your actions? And, you know, how do you know what you have to do? I guess uh, it's both ways. You react on a certain phenomenon, behavior of people when you design uh, being uh, initiatives. 
and then you have to prove or you know look at it at least uh, how successful it was it's a great question it's one that we're constantly as well being professionals right working to solve it's not an easy solve because a lot of the data is really private and we need to keep it private because if we don't then people won't seek out employee assistance or they won't seek out other solutions because they're rightfully so concerned about how very private information is taken. And we take that very seriously. As an organizational psychology master's data is like my love, right? I, I, I love making decisions based on data. I don't love math, as I said before, but I love what qualitative more than quantitative can show us. And so like many organizations, we have a yearly experience survey that really gets on, you know, all the areas of employee engagement, including well-being. That is one measurement that I look at year over year, and it's the same question. So I have a really good ability to kind of measure progress year over year based on what we focus on. The other thing is a lot of the beauty of these applications that we do use, while they're not 100% fixes, they do provide us data at an aggregate. And so When I say aggregate, I can look at things from a region or functional level, business unit level. And that helps me kind of, number one, see if what the solution is telling me is tracking with that once a year survey on a more real time scenario. But two, it also lets me see if there are areas of the business that maybe have an anomaly or something happening that is not happening in the total business. And so this is really what we've been focusing on building out the last couple months and into next year, it's in the plan to really focus even more heavily. We have to look at what the data shows and what the data quite clearly shows is that work is a critical determinant of well-being. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to steal Deloitte's words. That's their research, right? They, they refer to it in that way. I probably would have used other language before I read that study, but we can't take out the way we work. And that's always been a part of our well-being strategy at Takeda. It's a, it's a three-prong area where we have our dimensions, what's happening at work that's wreaking havoc on well-being and what's happening externally that we really don't have any control over, but we can provide resources for. That's how I've looked at it since the very first day we started this program. Those attributes tell us quite clearly that if we don't solve the way we work challenges, the needle's only going to move so far as well-being, right? Because it's not just the external factors that are wreaking havoc. It's long outdated practices and not good behaviors and overwork and lack of time management skills and inability to focus and prioritize. If we don't fix that stuff, we don't move the needle that much numerically. It's really, it's also listening, right? I don't get to do that enough. If I had to like give myself a ding on a report card, I do have the well-being champions once a month. We are taking them global. That's great. But if I needed to add one thing to kind of our approach, I would have more time um, or make more time for doing a listening tour and really hearing the different areas and not, and not relying on survey and well-being champion feedback and application feedback so much. So you would say that instead of looking at a certain metric, you would like to listen to the stories, what people tell, how they feel. Yeah, I mean, we're pretty lucky in that our people are very honest on the survey and there's opportunity to comment ad nauseum, open fields. They're very honest and I'm eternally grateful because that is the main way, right? We make things better. It's a huge organization. It's impossible to get to everybody. But at the same time, 
you know, I think broadening our well-being champion network is really going to help us have much more of a global ability to listen to our audience and really understand from their perspective what we need to do to make this, you know, the best place to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if you had to choose, you know, one metrics or quantitative data that you like to look at, or maybe that was most surprising for you, what would that be? That's a great question. I would really love to see it. We don't have this. We have data on flexibility and ways of working, but I would really love to see a metric that tied well-being and productivity together. That was the research area of my thesis. And it's very clearly indicative that flexibility improves well-being and improves performance from the research. But I would love to have an internal study that that mapped out that truth. I think it would be so fascinating. And it would hopefully change some of the decisions that we make, right? It's one thing to look at data that's external, even peer reviewed, even 32 studies like I did and and draw a hypothesis that's proven. But it's another thing to look at your own employee population and say the same thing. And I think that Mm -hmm. would be really beneficial. Hopefully you will achieve to uh, create such a matrix or include it somewhere. So uh, next time when we talk, then you can share us what happened. (laughs) Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. All right. So conscious of the time, two last questions for you that I always ask from the guest. One is what would be your advice for future well-being leaders? I'm going to go back to what I said earlier, make well-being a strategy and not a benefit, right? It, it has to be part of the strategy of the organization in order to not feel like a mentor of mine used to say, like another brick in the backpack right? It's got to, it's got to really be embedded and it can't just live in HR. That doesn't mean that the person doing the work doesn't live in HR. That means that it has to be owned throughout the organization or else it dies on the vine, right? Mm -hmm. This could be translated in a way that for leaders that please, you know, look at your organizational charts. And uh, if you create a position or add a position, then yeah, do it in the right uh, way and the right level of the organization. Or, you know, if someone happens to be hired as part of the benefit team, as a well-being leader, then try to keep still this mindset uh, that you need to work on the strategy on that level and even come with the organization to look at you in that way and then change the bureaucracy around the structure. I don't even think you have to change the structure of the org so much. I think it just, when you're building your structure or your strategy for the entire organization, well-being needs to be a part of that discussion, right? There's usually, you know, product, patient, people, all these things. There's got to be some strategy around improving the well-being or the experience of the people who work there, because I think we've seen and proven that happy people make better product. In our case, serve patients better. You don't have to necessarily change work structure, but you need to make sure that well-being isn't just the sole accountability of someone sitting in HR. What is your way uh, to be well? How do you take care of your own well-being? The most important thing in the world, and it's so hard, but it has nothing to do with the niceties of well-being, is creating and maintaining a boundary. Whenever I don't hold a boundary, whether it's family or work or, you know, I suffer. 
my work suffers. <laughs> I'm not a happy yeah. camper and it's constant, right? Like I just had this, sorry, mom and dad, if you're listening, but I went to visit them this past weekend, a week I was working from there and I didn't hold my adult boundaries. It really didn't make for the best trip we've ever had together. It created a lot of stress for me and that's on me. Boundary setting and holding is the number one well-being skill because it's foundational to time management. It's not foundational to blocking your schedule. So I can do all the yoga and breathing and journaling and, you know, all the things that I love to do that I want. But if I'm not setting and maintaining a boundary, then I've lost my well-being. Yes, I can totally relate to this. One of my favorite quotes is around this saying, yes, is easy. Saying no is difficult. So yes. I am with you. <laughs> but important. Saying no is important. And there's, there's nice ways to say no, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to feel like no is a bad word. No is taking care of yourself. Exactly. That's a very good uh, way to end uh, this conversation. Thanks a lot, Casey, for accepting my invitation and really looking forward to following your journey, your TEDx talk. I will be one of the first ones <laughs> listening to it. And uh, I really recommend it uh, to the listeners as well. We will also link it uh, to the podcast. Takeda is really lucky to have you as a well-being lead. Thank you. I appreciate this and I appreciate your time. And I always love catching up. In November, uh, I will be in Budapest uh, in Hungary on a conference. Uh, in mid-November, let me know if you are joining the Horizon Summit in Amsterdam in the Netherlands, as I will lead a panel discussion, enhancing people well-being through creating inclusive workplaces as a cornerstone of psychological safety. And last but not least, end of November, if you are in Zurich, Switzerland, then don't miss the Disrupt HR event. I will be there to spread the word about well-being with a surprise talk. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Wellbeing Designers podcast. If you would like to keep in touch with me, with us, sign up to the Wellbeing Designers newsletter. You can do this on our website www.wellbeing.design. You can reach out to me via the website or via LinkedIn as well. I am really happy to connect with other well-being designers from all over the world. Well-being designers is ready to work with you. So reach out if you or your organization needs expertise and inspiration why and how to create a culture of well-being and upskill your workforce, your employees, your leaders with future well-being skills. Remember, together we can design a human-centric work life and the future of well-being. <laughs>